Hello, everyone, and welcome to The In-Between. I'm your host, Naomi Loud, and we're still on the ongoing series of my memoir. Um, We are on episode nine, so one episode left, I mean, after this one. So there's a total of episodes, uh, 10 episodes. So we left off with vibes. Yeah, definite vibes. Uh, He broke up with me. I tried to tally how many times he broke up with me in that period of time from like of the span of episode eight. It was at least five, at least five in like a year, I think, (laughs) at least. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, but this one feels very, uh, a lot more permanent than most. So we're sort of navigating the reasons why and how I'm feeling uh, in this one. And how I react to it, obviously. Yeah, so I think let's just get into it. Not a lot of intro here. I just want to, you know, dive into the story and discover all of the things I will, you know, experience. So without further ado, this is episode 9, Somebody I Used to Know. Our last split has taken its toll on me. My self-respect is dwindling as I scrape the bottom of my soul for leftovers. This time, I don't want us back together, and I'm determined to keep my distance. But we're magnets. No matter where I am in the city, I can feel him. The pull towards him. It's undeniable. We are destined to slowly kill one another. We drink the same poison over and over again. It can only stop if one of us leaves the city. And the decision is on me. I know he's never going to leave. Still, I wonder why all our breakups hurt equally, like a fresh cut on my skin. Deep down, we both know we can't stay apart. Sori's is insistent this time. He didn't realize I would take this last breakup so seriously. He tells me he never planned on this to be so final. I never meant it to be so serious. I just wanted your attention, he says. I listen in disbelief. If only he knew his reassurance heightens my urge to run. I'm 23 and used up. My mind is vacant. The only things left is his own implanted thoughts. He makes me question reality. Is this even real? Is he really that bad? He swears he isn't, but I can no longer trust myself. He makes me feel old. Sawyer turned 37 in October and has made me live twice my lifetime in three years. Loving him is hard and I'm depleted. Squeeze me too tight and I'll disappear in a puff of smoke. His games are no longer enticing. They burn a hole through my skull. Just be lucky you don't have kids with Sawyer, my sister says to me often. What she means to say is, at least when the real breakup eventually happens, I can be rid of him forever. But I did want Sawyer's child. Three and a half years in, and we still don't live together. But we have our baby names all picked out. I have it all rehearsed. The house, the children, and a life which seems just out of reach but In reality, it's further away than any fantasy I've ever created in my head. 
In one of our fabricated future, we have a white trash wedding in Vegas. Why was a Vegas wedding so alluring? I have no clue, but we both giggled at the thought. We'd rent a convertible and drive down to Nevada. In this shared fantasy, I'm pregnant at our wedding. Swollen belly, white platform flip-flops, and happy. Sori once confided that two of his girlfriends had abortions, making him wonder if there was something wrong with him, as if their decision not to have his baby was solely based on how shitty a father Sawyer could be. My heart aches for Sawyer, the desire to have his child burning in my stomach. I believe Sawyer would make a great father, but a great partner, not so much. How I thought a 37-year-old who could barely take care of himself was well-suited to care for children is beyond me. I love him, and he loves me. That's all that matters. We never do try. The dream for a better life satisfies us enough. By fall of 2011, I enroll back in school determined to get my life back on track. Sawyer creates another fantasy then, all on his own. Sawyer confesses how sexy it would be if I had a pregnant belly while going to class. Then everyone would know I was his, and that was his baby inside of me. Part of me loves the idea and understands the romance in Sawyer's fantasy, but it also leaves me wondering why that image is so appealing to him. It's possessive, and even a little creepy. If I was carrying his child then, I would be his and his only. He wouldn't have to worry about other men flirting with me. The child I would be carrying didn't really matter. It was the control he had over me in that scenario that turned him on. But he paints the image so clearly and innocently that I still carried it in my mind, wishing I could be pregnant not for the child but for what it means for our relationship. This sort of toxic possessiveness of my body reminded me of an instance a few weeks before Sawyer broke up with me back in August. During one of our fights over texts at work, in an exhausted attempt to convince him once again that I was his and no one else's, I told him I would get his name tattooed on my pubic bone. To no surprise, he immediately calmed down and loved the idea. I genuinely planned on getting tattooed until he broke up with me and I forgot all about it. The universe had swung in for the save once again. Luckily, school forces me back into a daily routine outside of McKibben's, which keeps me from falling deeper into the well of whiskey I'm already drowning in. Since I'm drinking less, my anxiety skyrockets with the pressure of due dates and exams. I suffer from panic attacks without having any words to describe it. I'm not even aware that I have anxiety. I just call it nerves, as it eats away at my body and soul. I cry uncontrollably, paralyzed in bed, wondering what the hell is wrong with me. Eventually, I confide to one of my friends that the urge to hurt myself is back, and she pushes me to visit the school's therapist. I do with dragging feet. It only takes two sessions of me avoiding the subject to decide the problem is school, not me, and decide I need to escape. The solution is scuba diving. During Tuesday's philosophy class, I research ways I can escape instead of listening to the lecture. Running away from my problem is the best idea I had in years. I'm not sure what I'm looking for, but my only criteria is underwater. I Google words like diving, school, and program, press enter, and hope for the best. Most hits are teaching jobs, but eventually I find what I'm looking for. It's an NGO called Global Vision International, and they specialize in environmental volunteer work. They offer marine conservation internships in Mexico, Fiji, and the Seychelles. Fuck yes. It takes me another week to research the organization before making any decisions as I carefully weigh in all of my options. After much deliberation, I choose the Seychelles as my next escape route. 
The Seychelles is a small group of islands in the Indian Ocean off the west coast of Madagascar. Remote and far, far away from here. I secure my spot in the program for August 2012, 10 months from now. It's an expensive internship, especially when I convert the prices from British pounds to Canadian dollars. I have to save up $10,000 in less than a year. I plan to quit school after the fall semester and work full-time again until then. I drop as many classes as I can and coast through the semester, daydreaming about the ocean. At last, I have a way out, and in my journal, I title my trip The Great Escape. Finally, I can run away from Sawyer forever. I can finally focus my energy on something other than my life here in Montreal. A life which, let's fucking face it, still involves Sawyer daily. That same night, I have a dream. A vision of a deserted beach. I watch myself sit near the waves, the ocean surrounding me. Then, as if soaring in the sky, I watch myself sitting on the beach below. The dream feels like it's wrapped inside a soft cotton ball. Safe and so peaceful. It punctuates my reality with a bright light and relief. My last year in Montreal has been hard. Nothing has been easy. And nothing has been close to peaceful. I yearn for the day I can feel as serene as in my dream, my toes digging into the warm sand, the calming waves lapping on the shore. November is quiet this time around. Sore is gone for most of the month, touring Australia. And by the end, to no one's fucking surprise, we're acting like a couple again. But he is not my boyfriend. I have a surprise for you, Sori texts me one day. He tells me he's taking me out tonight, but it's a secret. Later that night, he picks me up at my place and we take the metro heading downtown. As I sit on the train next to Sawyer, I enumerate all the possible places we could be going. Surely it has to do with our many traditions, as I think some more. Finally, it dawns on me. Oh my god, are we going to the Kooks concert? Sawyer grins, and with a twinkle in his eye, he takes my hands in his and kisses them. Yep, we're going to the Kooks concert. My friend can let us in for free. The Kooks is my favorite band and I've never seen them live. Alongside 808s and Heartbreak by Kanye West, their album Inside In, Inside Out has been witness to many sweaty afternoons spent in bed with Sawyer. When we arrive at Metropolis, I head upstairs as Sawyer buys us overpriced beers at the bar on the main floor. I find a spot near the side railings and enjoy the vantage point, looking down, up, and around. Eventually, Sawyer finds me upstairs and hands me a beer. I sip on the plastic cup, excited for the upcoming show and night. I look back down, watching the sea of people gathered near the stage as the show finally starts. I cheer with the crowd, the energy building up in the room. What a perfect night with Sawyer by my side. Years later, I discover my future husband had been in the same crowd I watched from above. I was destined to meet him 11 months after the great escape. A man who would teach me unconditional love after a lifetime of conditional men. We shared the same space for a night, our paths not yet destined to cross. As absurd as it sounds, things have been relatively calm since Sawyer broke up with me. Sawyer never expected such an effective breakup, and when I don't bounce back to picture-perfect girlfriend, Sawyer shows me a nicer, calmer, and more forgiving side of him. I can tell he can feel me slipping through his fingers, and he's careful not to frighten me. I have 184 days left in Montreal till the Great Escape, and I try to keep Sawyer at arm's length but fail on a weekly basis. Sawyer has seeped inside every grove, every crack of my psyche, and even the weather reminds me of him. Another season, a different breakup, and a whole new way to make up. Winters in Montreal smells like falling in love, 
and sometimes the winds blow perfumes of distant heartaches instead. Montreal reminds me of renewed love and lonely nights, just like how the fragrance of fresh laundry reminds me of Thailand. But I'm so bored of this revolving door of pain, a will-he-won't-he debate looping inside my head. It's hard to stay away. Meanwhile, I'm desperately looking for a more permanent way out and have myself convinced my only option is to fuck my way out. I'm hungry for someone new, whoever it might be. It's the night of the staff party, the infamous McKibben staff party. I'm still wary from the year before. What if I end up with another Donnie in the laundry room? But this year is a little different. Sora and I aren't together officially. But our muddled lines creates a vacuum of guilt inside of me and I carry it with me everywhere I go. The staff party is at our sister bar downtown and although it's open bar upstairs, I spend most of my time downstairs drinking with my friends. The actual reason I'm down here, however, is to stare at Owen on stage while he sings a Black Keys cover into the microphone. Owen has a girlfriend. Classic move. Another musician in his 30s. Younger than Sawyer, but still old enough to leave me impressionable and eager to please. Owen has become my favorite pastime ever since I've started working full-time again. We eye-fuck from across the bar while I serve drinks and he plays cover songs to a drunken crowd. And tonight is no different. In between sets, Owen and I flirt as we clink our shot glasses together, lust dripping like honey from our lips. My life revolves around alcohol, and flirting is no exception. A shot of Jameson is foreplay. It also makes it easier to later to hook up. When Owen finishes his final set, he orders a beer at the bar as I happen to be standing right there. After a few shots elbow to elbow, he asks me if I like him. I laugh but still lean in. It doesn't matter if I like you, I pause looking straight at him. You have a girlfriend. It's not what you think, he replies quickly. We're breaking up. Owen grins, his smile devious and delicious. Do you want to follow me? He then says, I lick my lips and swallow hard. Of course I want to follow him. The anticipation rises in my chest as Owen takes my hand and I follow him down to the basement. He leads me through a small, winding corridor lined with kegs and empty cardboard boxes. He knows of a hidden bathroom away from the main floor. I'm reeling, once again high on infidelity and the very act of sneaking around. When we reach the bathroom, I slip in, followed by Owen locking the door behind us. What is this, I crave? Forbidden kisses from older men? My drug of choice. I'm addicted to the crackling static before the first kiss. It's where fantasy and lust meets reality like a moth to the flame. Owen sits me on the sink as I lean over and kiss him. We lose track of time as we make out and Owen undresses me. But things come to a screeching halt when we realize neither of us have a condom. Eventually, I sneak out of the bathroom first and him a few minutes later. The bar is now empty and Owen's bandmates are packing up near the stage. No one really picked up on our absence except his guitarist and best friend Clive who eyes us sideways as I sit on a bar stool, beaming from ear to ear like a dummy. Owen leaves out the front door and gives me a loaded glance. A look I've seen on the lips of others many times before. A look I've always been addicted to, no matter who was behind the smile. I give him a smirk back, proud of my accomplishment. Was it really? The next day, I wake up feeling like the queen of the world. Owen calls me in the morning, the alcohol vapors coming out of my pores giving me enough courage to invite him over. Finish what you've started, I purr. I'm a vixen, but he declines. 
It's not that simple, he says. Right. He still lives with his girlfriend. I lay back into my pillows, the similarities between Sawyer and Owen now glaring like the afternoon sun filtering through my heavy curtains. And as the day progresses, I sober up but can't shake the nagging feeling I'm doing something morally corrupt. What was I thinking? Or was I even thinking at all? I spent the rest of the night convincing myself my crush on Owen is over. My go-to move. The itch has been scratched, and maybe now I can move on and find someone single for a change. In the off chance Sawyer still reads my journal, I write in codes about my hookup with Owen, only writing bathroom, period, homerake, period. I spend the next few days feeling guilty while still sleeping over at Sawyer's every night. We take long winter walks in the dead of night, the quiet crunch of our boots on the icy sidewalk the only sound, as I ask him existential questions concerning our love while pretending there's no real reason for my sudden bereavement. We take baths together, cramped in his small tub while listening to Jamie T on repeat, my mood never improving. My mind splits in half as it always does when I'm hiding the truth from Sawyer. In the following week, as my moral dilemma continues to weigh heavy on my conscience, I switch tactics and convince myself I feel no connection towards Sawyer and push him away for the hundredth time. Following Owen into the bathroom wasn't a mistake. It was a conscious step towards self-destruction. I've been pushed to the edge and now believe the only way out is to destroy everything on my path while I count down the days till my great escape. And in the following weeks, I'm depressed and hammered one day to, quote, liberated but still self-destructive, unquote, the next. I can't live with or without Sawyer. We're broken pieces of the same puzzle, but we no longer fit or never have. By mid-February, I keep Sawyer blocked from my phone for days at a time. I want the freedom to flirt with boys and party all night. Blocking Sawyer alleviates my conscience, but when those same boys reject me, I crawl back to Sawyer while playing taxi roulette, never knowing what address I'll tell the cab driver until the very last second. I knock on his living room window, a reverse Romeo and Juliet, and he always lets me in. On the eve of Valentine's Day, I end up at his place after a night of drinking. The next day, we stay in bed all day, watching shows on his computer, as we always do. Then we walk to the local Vietnamese restaurant for pho. Ironically, it's our best V-Day ever, and once again we blur lines I so desperately want to keep clear. I head home that night determined not to let Sawyer in further that I already have. It only takes me less than a week to cave. I accept Sawyer's invitation for a drink at Honey's, a rockabilly Irish pub down the hill from my house. What Sawyer is unaware of is that Honey's is also Owen's favorite bar. He lives across the street, and as a tactical move, I accept Sawyer's invite in an attempt to make Owen jealous. I'm unhinged. I can't shake Sawyer off of me, nor do I seem to want him off permanently. But the anger stored in the deepest corner of my body is now oozing out of me from the cracks in my skin. When Sawyer is soft and docile, I bite back with venom. It's been almost a month since I hooked up with Owen in the bathroom. I'm existing on borrowed time with Sawyer. As soon as he finds out, and he will find out, he will end us. My friends continue to tell me Sawyer doesn't deserve the truth. I'm allowed to keep some secrets to myself, especially at the stage of our non-relationship relationship. As we enter Honey's, we head to an empty table near the stage. The bar is well known to be small and narrow. There's nowhere to hide, and it's nearly impossible to ignore someone in this tight communal space. 
As we listen to the band play on stage, one of the bathroom doors facing us open and Owen walks out. Adrenaline courses through me as I wave him over to the table. He's destabilized only for a second and quickly shakes it off, then walking up to the table with a smile. He shakes Sawyer's hand as we exchange banalities. I take pleasure from their interaction, as if I had any dominion over my own life. One more secret to keep from Sawyer. I'm building momentum to rocket my way out of Sawyer's orbit. Our love has become psychopathic. A love so unhealthy, it makes us both sick. Four days later, I wake up hungover like most mornings. I roll over with a groan and check my phone. 10.35 a.m. flashes on the screen as I realize I'm late for my shift, which started five minutes ago. I'm working a double that day, which means not only am I late, but I'm also about to suffer through an 18-hour shift with hardly any breaks or food. I throw on my uniform, call a cab, and run out the door. I had rounded up a few of my friends that the night before and gone out to Honey's. Owen was playing with his band and I stayed for the whole set, later talking with him after hours till 5 in the morning. But as much as I like Owen, my heartbreak is a chasm between me and everyone else. I can't help but to talk about Sawyer all the fucking time, even to Owen. I've spent the last three consecutive days hanging out with Sawyer, and it makes me uneasy. Blocking him on my phone is the only way to avoid him. I toy with him as he toys with me. Somehow, I survive my 18-hour shift by turning my hangover into a buzz and hustle my way through till 3 in the morning. At the end of the night, I'm counting my cash eager to get home and pass out when one of the bouncers comes up to my table. It's a warning. Sawyer's waiting for me outside near the back door. But I'm still emboldened by my recent hangout with Owen and tell the bouncer to please tell him to leave. I'm way too tired to deal with this shit, but to my dismay, Sawyer's drunk out of his mind and refuses to leave. I'm trapped. I know what's waiting for me outside. I've had three years to rehearse, especially after I've just denied him access. His ego must be raging. When it's time to leave, I brace myself for the worst. The bouncer is aware Sora is still outside and escorts me out, followed by my friend and bartender who's giving me a ride home. As soon as I open the door, I see Sawyer waiting near the dumpsters like a bull seeing red. But my brain is mush and I'm completely checked out. I couldn't care less about his tantrum. First, Sawyer screams at the bouncer. When that doesn't work, Sawyer then goes after the bartender, yelling at him as he follows us all the way to the car. This is the first time I've ever feared Sawyer getting physical. Not with me, but with the men who are trying to protect me from him. But he does nothing, standing there as we drive away. I barely shed a tear that night. Sawyer's made it hard for me to feel bad for him, and in the following days, I resume back to a life where Sawyer is merely a block number on my phone. It protects me from his wrath when he's a couple pints deep. If he calls, I don't know, and on most nights, the thought comforts me. It's only been three days since Sawyer's freakout, but somehow it feels much longer. If not working, I refuse to be left alone and drink every night if I can manage it. My friend Rose has slept over after a night out partying instead of going home. She's also going through a breakup. In the morning, Rose and I gather our strength and head to my local breakfast joint where we order large veggie frittatas. They're made mostly out of cheese and eggs, which only makes our hangover worse. After breakfast, we walk back to my place and nap for the second time that day. At night, we watch The Bachelorette while eating pizza and guzzle large cans of Red Bull. Still hungover, we ready ourselves for round two of a heavy night of partying to counteract our current ailment. I've decided to introduce Rose to Honeys for all the wrong reasons. 
reasons that are all about me, but tell her it's because it's just down the road and full of cute punk rock guys on the regular. The weather outside is bitter cold as we half jog, half skid down the snowy sidewalk heading to Honey's. Finally, inside the tiniest of pubs, we're lucky to find two spots at the bar and secure our seats for the next five hours. It's surprisingly busy for a Monday night. Everyone has turned up for the rockabilly band playing later. I'm in heaven. We order two Talisker's on ice, sipping on our glasses, believing we are the pinnacle of sophistication as I scope the vicinity for hot boys to stare at. Our hangovers have followed us here like a foul smell. And to remedy things, we order car bombs. Not wanting to bring any attention to us, we secretly cheers from under the bar as we drop our shots and chug. Finally, the blurry lens of intoxication slides into place, obliterating my hangover. It's a specific kind of drunk. The kind where the person I'm talking to has doubled. But with a sly half-closed eyelid, the problem is rectified and no one is the wiser. The kind of drunk where I evade my body completely. A vacant body making all the decisions for me. Whether it be right or wrong, I'm on vacation. Vacation from life. It's unclear to me then whether I want to die or not, so blackouts are my best option out of my mind and into the void. But eventually, I always hurtle back into my body come late afternoon and wish the void could have swallowed me whole. I blink and it's 3 a.m. Rose takes a cab home and I zigzag back up the hill. My motor skills are beyond poor as I reach my building's front door and open it. I make my way into the lobby, swaying up the five steps to the second door. By the fourth step, I make a 180 and stumble back down the stairs. I land face first into the corner near the door, ripping my jeans at the knee on my way down. The next morning, I take pictures of my bruised knees and laugh, unable to see how pathetic my behavior and my life has truly become. It only takes me another few more nights of hard partying to wake up with a severe case of depression. I lay in bed, the hard pit in my stomach settling in for the day as I remember this is my life. And it's killing me. All I want is to fall back asleep until I have to deal. So much of my time is spent sleeping away the shame, the guilt, and the nervousness because I still have no words to describe the severe anxiety racking through my body. I love going out. I love being seen. But then I wake up in bed alone and scream. A silent and hopeless scream, no sound ever coming out of my mouth. The sheets cover half my face, my hands and fists, and my body in a ball. Nausea eventually settles in as my body struggles to purge whatever is left to evict from my scrawny flesh. Depression is a hell of a diet, and my stomach contracting from the heavy heaves feels better than any meal eaten. A confirmation of my insides cleaner. I cleanse myself with self-harm and feel so much better about it as I crawl back into bed, shaky and sweaty. Maybe if I sleep for just a little bit longer, I can run away from the memories of last night, calling my name, asking to be acknowledged. Then I remember I broke a glass in the kitchen the night before, but I'm unable to move and clean up the mess. I'm paralyzed as I listen, my walls so thin to my neighbor's bird chirping on the other side. I wonder then what sounds my neighbors can hear emanating through my walls. Most likely sex, screaming, and crying. I listen to Missing You by Denisha Odigi, memorizing the lyrics and sob. Music parents me in times of anguish, solace for a minute or two. It's the only thing that can make my heart beat just a little bit stronger for those few minutes until the silence comes back and I'm on my own all over again. Music tells me how I need to feel or that I am allowed to feel. Music can fix my dissociation for one song, just long enough to feel the disarray that I hold within me. Music tells me it's okay to be sad, 
It's okay to cry. All of it. Sori keeps telling me every love song on my playlist is sad. But then again, our love is sad. So many of my favorite song recounts the pains I'm going through. I find myself in every lyric, in every pause and sigh. Melodies that makes me cry, and cry I do for days sometimes. There are certain songs that I just can't stomach anymore. I've attached too much meaning to it, and now all I hear when the melodies play is Sawyer's name. Somebody I Used to Know by Gautier is one of many. Heartbeat by Childish Gambino is another. They came out at a similar time. The dark months, I've come to baptize them. My whole time with Sawyer has been dark, but how I managed to sink even deeper into darkness for these couple months of late winter 2012 is almost unfathomable. They've left scars in places I still can't reach nine years later. I still consider Sawyer the love of my life. Love is pain. Love is absence. I cry as I unblock Sawyer from my phone and text him that I miss him. Can you come over on your way to work? I ask him. Of course, he replies. I leave the door unlocked as he later comes in and sits on the edge of my bed. He tries to comfort me, but all I really want is to sink deeper into the mattress. I can't wait to leave, I remind him. The great escape. When Sawyer leaves an hour later, we barely say a word. He lingers near the hallway looking at me with sad eyes as I extend my hand towards him. I want to kiss goodbye. But he drops his head instead and walks out. My hand falls limp to the side of my bed. I'm just too damn exhausted to cry. By the beginning of March 2012, the promise of an early spring seems to shift my mood for the somewhat better. How I came out of February without a severe case of alcohol poisoning is beyond me. I take a few days off and hibernate for four days straight. I haven't spoken to Sawyer since that time he left sad and I was even sadder, but it's only a matter of time until I unblock him from my phone and summon him to my quarters. My wellness stint doesn't last very long. I continue to drink as hard as before, drinking after hours after my long shifts at McKibbin's, where the staff drinks beer out of the fridge and dance to 80s music till 6 in the morning. I return home, taking the morning bus surrounded by healthy, spry commuters, while I most likely reek of alcohol as I wear my sunglasses in attempt to hide from the rather judgmental rays of the sun. While Sawyer yo-yos in and out of my life, I haven't lost sight of Owen. One night at Honey's, Owen licks his lips, gives me the nod, and I perk up. He's finally taking me home. His girlfriend must be out of town. I follow him home from the bar like a dog. What's that feeling again? Of recognizing something else inside of me. Something raging. Something shameful. But I just sit there instead, waiting to be touched. I'm not sure if I'm going blind or seeing double. The only way to fix it is to make out. A 3 a.m. couch fuck. That's all I am. He tells me the bed is off limits out of respect to his ex-girlfriend. When it's all said and done, I can't help but think the anticipation of his touch was almost better than the touch itself. He hands me a tissue, kisses me goodbye, and gropes me all the way to the door. Outside, I notice the sun is shining and walk back home smiling. Another unavailable man for the win. I sleep till three in the afternoon and by evening I'm out the door again. I have no time to process my emotions, nor do I want to. All I need is to stay moving at all times. This time, I'm going out with my friend Izzy. We gear up for a serious night of partying as Izzy hands me some Ritalin in the car before making our way inside Burgundy Lion. After cocktails at the pub, we buy coke from Izzy's dealer and head downtown to a nondescript club for the night. 
Hours later, we snort the last of the drugs on her living room table as we watch television as visual distraction to our high. Izzy then heads to bed having to work early in the next morning and hands me a sleeping pill, followed by another pill I don't know what for. But I take it anyway. It's huge, but I swallow both and soon pass out on her couch. The next morning, Izzy shakes me awake as she readies herself for work. I stand up, half asleep, and waver on my feet trying to catch my balance. Suddenly, I see stars forming at the edge of my eyes and pass out, slamming my chin on the living room table. I'm only out for a few seconds. Disoriented, I roll myself into a ball on Izzy's cold floor and remain still as she flocks near me. Are you okay? Izzy screams. After a few short breaths, I mumble yes from the tiled floor and slowly sit back on the couch. I convince Izzy I'm fine but decide to stay on her couch for the remainder of the day. I try to sleep it off, barely having the energy to lift my arm up and answer my phone, let alone text Izzy back. When Izzy drives me home that night, I can barely form a sentence. I think you taught me a lesson today, Izzy says, drumming her fingers on the steering wheel. I should never give away my prescription like that. I look back at her, eyes semi-vacant, and nod. I know. This could have ended way worse. She parks her car in front of my building and we hug goodbye. I preemptively cover my shift for the next day and sleep for the next 26 hours. I'm aware I've hit rock bottom, and I'm left with a small scar under my chin as a reminder. I blame the city for all my problems, and at this rate, I won't survive another year. Only four months to go, I repeat to myself. Only four months to go. March is unusually warm this year, and on St. Patrick's Day weekend, the snow has melted and the sun is hot. Two years has passed since I've received my teaching certification on the open ocean. Two years since I've told myself I felt complete. Now I'm ripped up, chewed up, and old. And to confirm, it has not been our year, our second, or our third. On that Sunday, after our last shift of the weekend, Rose and I jump in a cab to grab a drink at Burgundy Lion before last call. Unexpectedly, we bump into Owen and Clive sitting at the bar. I play it casual, but inside I'm desperate for him to take me home again. When the bar closes, we pile up in taxis and head to Clive's for an after-hour hangout. In total, it's four of Clive's friends, plus Rose and I. Owen sits next to me on the couch, and since we aren't in public, he wraps his arm around me and squeezes me closer to him. Why am I always choosing men who hides me from the world? Still, I'm elated. As the morning sun grows brighter through the blinds, his friends eventually leave and Clive and Rose gradually migrates to the kitchen to give us some privacy. When I'm sober, which is practically never, I'm shy, but when I drink, I'm sexy. Or so I think. I always take the sexually aggressive approach and never take no for an answer. I head towards Owen's crotch, unzipping his pants and sucking him off right there on the couch. When he finishes, Owen button-ups his pants as I beg for him to take me home. I can't, he says, kissing me goodbye as he walks out the door. I stay behind, joining Rose in the kitchen, wasting time, feeling hollow, and wishing I was somewhere else. I should have just gone to bed. Ten whole days has passed since I first slept with Owen, and I barely mention Sawyer in my journal. Too busy fawning over another unavailable man in his thirties. I fear Sawyer, but most importantly, I fear Sawyer's reaction. He still doesn't know about Owen, and Sawyer isn't letting go as easily as I expected. I'm well aware of the pain he can potentially cause me if he learns about Owen. I choose to push Sawyer away and ignore him instead, but he keeps bouncing back like a toy on a spring. 
All of his breakups were a fucking joke, and I'm only now realizing it. He's played me for three years, and now for a short period of time, I'm the one in control. And I can't stomach the idea of relinquishing this power. To have to revert back to the submissive role Sawyer has grown to love, the one whom he desires most of all. When I ignore him, he becomes relentless, eager to prove we're truly meant to be. I come home one night to find our initials written in Sharpie on the bottom of the main door of my building. I'm pissed. Nothing can change the fact that I've slept with someone else. I thought sleeping with Owen would sever my ties with Sawyer, but Sawyer is as pushy and needy as ever and I'm exhausted. He's the easiest choice between hell and purgatory. Still, I'm guilty, and as long as I don't see him, I can keep my mind occupied on somebody else. After having gone to bed at 8 a.m. one morning, I wake up in the evening sad and depressed. What else is new? I cave and invite Sawyer over. He's always quick to say yes lately. It's one of the only things I enjoy about these confusing times. Sawyer comes over, and we walk down the hill towards Honey's for a late-night pint. We find a table near the door and settle in after ordering a round of Guinness and Jameson. Although I'm the one who invited Sawyer over, I resist any kind of affection or admiration from Sawyer. Luckily, he's in a good mood and think my behavior is adorable. We drink our first beers fast and Sawyer orders another round at the bar. As he sits back down beside me, he smirks and says, The bartender says we make a really cute couple. I cross my arms and let out air, acting fake annoyed about the comment. Whatever. Cheers, I reply as I brandish my shot in the air. I swallow the whiskey in one gulp, the familiar black ink of intoxication already seeping through the cracks in my mind, muddying the edges of my vision. Instinctively, I lean over and kiss Sawyer, a tradition I've insisted we upkeep after every cheers. I'm loosening my grip on reality as I slowly allow Sawyer back in. I become sloppy and horny, grabbing his crotch under the table, whispering in his ear, we should have sex in the park on our way home. But then it's the morning after, and I only remember half the night. At least Sawyer is sleeping next to me. The night must have ended on a positive note. Later, I listen as Sawyer gets dressed, pulling his dickies up his waist, the telltale sign of his keys finding at the threshold of my ear. He kisses me goodbye as I moan from my hangover, my head throbbing with every heartbeat. According to Sawyer, we did have sex that night, but I can't remember a second of it. And with it, I reopen the gates of emotions and confusion. My apartment floods with the existence of Sawyer once again. By April, I'm still grasping at anything to push Sawyer out of my life. Eventually even adding Nick back on Facebook. A sign of protest and resistance. Plus of the simple fact that it feels good to speak to Nick again. It doesn't take long for Sawyer to look through my added friends and find Nick's name. He declares war via text as usual. I cry as I apply my makeup for work and chug vodka out of the freezer before my shift, numbing me enough to survive the night. I brace myself for the worst as I expect a barrage of texts from Sora throughout the night, my phone buzzing in my pocket as I'm busy serving tables till three. After my shift, I sit down at a corner table while Rose sits next to me stuffing mayonnaise packets into baskets for the next day's shift. Sawyer knows I added Nick back on Facebook, I say, laughing nervously. You added Nick back? Why? Rose says as she shoots me a perplexed look. I don't know. I just felt like doing it. I don't see the big deal, I mutter. She tells me I have to make a choice. Either I keep Sawyer in my life or Nick. We all know Sawyer will never let me have both. I should know this by now. I don't answer, suddenly serious, taking a sip of the cold beer I've taken out of the fridge instead. 
I know she's right. Still, rage rises from the back of my throat as I take another sip of my beer, swallowing it right back down. The next morning, I apologize to Sawyer, tell him he's right, and delete poor Nick from Facebook again to smooth things over. Nonetheless, the familiar rage never seems to leave me, hovering and stalking me everywhere I go. A week later, we're miraculously still on good terms as we head down to the Orange Line to Nemur Station. It's Value Village Day, one more of our silly little traditions. Inside the store, Sawyer follows me around as I pile shirts, tops, and old man cardigans into a shopping cart. Sweet! Sawyer, look! I beam as I hold up a fitted flannel shirt up in the air. It's checkered, red and black, with silver threads weaved through the fabric. We share a love for flannel shirts, mostly because I love looking at him wearing one. Sawyer looks up and smiles, but it's a sad smile. I'm jealous that other guys will see you in it and I won't. He keeps his smile, but shifts his gaze back to the rack of clothes in front of him. One more innocent moment turned into a loaded minefield by Sawyer's words. Nonetheless, I know it's his way to say I would look good in it and chuck it into the pile. After shopping, we walk across the highway towards the orange julep. The restaurant is famous for its building, shaped like a giant orange. We order veggie pogos to go and sit outside the giant orange while we eat. We share a drink as we talk casually and laugh. I can hardly tell we've recently been putting each other through hell. From the outside, we seem normal, but inside, we decay. It's the first time in a long time I've felt Sawyer listening to me as we talk. He spends the night as we smoke weed and watch movies. We're masquerading as a couple again, and I'm enjoying this recent version of Sawyer. It's leading me to believe we could possibly make it work. But first, I need to tell him about Owen. I eventually do the next day. Telling Sawyer is an obvious mistake, like most things in our relationship. How did I expect a peaceful reaction from Sawyer after three years of fighting? I've lost sight of the real prize, my escape, and settle for the wrong kind of love all over again. Sawyer acts fine the first day. He tells me how much he loves me and cares about me. But on day two, the status quo changes and Sawyer flips his script, calling me names and finishing our text conversation with a declaration. Tonight, I'm going out and fucking someone who is not you. How exciting! I respond with, have fun, love, XOXO, out of spite. Inside, I rage and punch the corner of my bathroom wall just to see the bruises rise on my knuckles. I then take a knife to the heart tattoo I have on my finger. The tattoo somehow represents everything wrong with my life, and I still have a scar now, years later, straight through the heart like a poisonous arrow. I feel sick, my ears stinging my eyes as I head out the door for another night shift at McKibben's. Sawyer and I haven't talked since I've come clean about Owen four days ago. Now here we are, drinking in the same bar, meters apart but ignoring each other. From the corner of my eye, I watch Sawyer head towards the Burgundy Lion bathrooms and decide to follow him. I need to defuse the situation. It usually works if I can manage to corner Sawyer one-on-one. -on -one. Before he has time to close the door, I push my way in and lock the door behind me. Sawyer is clearly intoxicated as he unbuttons his pants to piss. I giggle, full of nerves, realizing I'm basically standing there staring at him while he pees. While it isn't really anything out of the ordinary for us, still the whole situation makes me anxious. What the fuck are you laughing at? Sawyer glares at me with drunk, beady eyes. His tone catches me off guard, and I drop the smile. I don't know, I mumble, looking down at my feet. Sawyer remains silent as he zips his pants up and flushes the toilet. Time stops, then it accelerates. 
The brutality of the words he flings at me shocks me into pushing him against the wall. A desperate attempt to shut him up, but it doesn't work. He pushes back and I retaliate, shoving him in the chest once again while Sawyer's friend is banging on the door in protest, hearing us fight. I try blocking Sawyer's way, but he shoves me to the side, opens the door, and storms out the bathroom. At the bar, my friends watch Sawyer exit the pub, his friend now trailing behind him. Adrenaline pumps through my body, my hands shaking as I slowly lock the door once again. The ring I was wearing broke during the fight, and I lean over to pick up the pieces off the floor. I look at myself in the mirror, tears streaming down my cheeks as I try to catch my breath and calm down. Pathetic. I'm already forgetting the words he's used to punish me. But the way they feel, hot against my skin, will never fade. My friends are waiting at the bar with question marks lodged in their eyes. I tell them the gist of it and sit back down at the bar. I order a double vodka as someone else hands me a shot. Sawyer showed me another side of him that night. Or maybe it's more like he finally showed himself in full. I no longer know his limits and it scares me. Sawyer tries to apologize the next day but changes his tune quickly and declares that he no longer wants to speak to me. I accept his decision while listening to somebody I used to know on repeat. Maybe this is us finally moving on. hello there welcome back (laughs) i think i'm delirious episode nine that and episode three are probably my most uh like hard episodes to wrap my head around i guess i feel like there's a lot of violence in this one (laughs) i'm not laughing i'm just exhausted i i don't know what to say about this honestly i i feel like there's nothing to say like, other than darkness. Like, that time period was so fucked. Just so utterly devoid of hope. Like, I don't, I still don't understand how I survived it. And, um, I was looking through my notes and I was like, I didn't really, like, I thought about maybe looking up the, the, the date of the the fight that we had in the bathroom because that like will forever stick in my my mind like that was the 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 most physical we ever got but then I was like nah <laughs> like it felt once again it felt a little too clinical for me to you know I don't know I don't really have to investigate the reasons why we were fighting but I did look up um I didn't have a specific date, but I was I was wondering what the fuck was going on that February because that February was like this insane, heightened, weird fucking month, man. And it was really the beginning of the dark months. Like I've I, I've always called them that because they were fucking dark, man. And I would drink myself silly, like, and it was just really depressing. Anyway, so you remember how I said. Um, that basically Saturn would stay in Libra for the entirety of our relationship, which I thought was just always, I've always thought was really interesting. And, um, and so I looked, 
I, I looked up like Feb- from February 1st to the end of February just to see what was going on in the sky, like if I could see anything. And the one thing, well, there's a few things. The, f- the first thing I noticed was that Saturn that whole time was at 29 degrees Libra. So it was on its way out, but not yet. And 29 degrees, like I've mentioned, is a critical degree. And of what I've gathered of, of you know, of degrees is that zero degrees represents almost the potential um, slash positive, more hopeful side of the sign versus 29 degrees. When you look at it in a transit type of, not in natal charts specifically, but more in like mund- mundane astrology, it represents almost the like culmination of the sign like it's not the it's not the greatest degree let's say so I thought that was interesting and um so yeah Saturn was at 29 degree uh Libra but what was also going on was that Venus was in Aries okay so that wouldn't be like the most interesting except well a it was also opposite like it was opposing that Saturn in Libra but Aries is in my seventh house. So Venus was transiting my seventh house that whole month. And uh, it also would at one point conjunct my 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 uh, my Mars in Aries, um, which is in the seventh house. So, you know, Aries is not the most, Venus is not the most <laughs> comfortable in Aries. And definitely my uh, seventh house was activated I also noticed Mars was retrograde, which I don't really have much to say, but I thought was interesting that Mars was uh, retrograde that entire time. So I don't have much to say about this episode, to be honest. I feel like there's there's enough said in the entire episode. Like, it's hard to... Like, I've dissected, I think, enough of my behavior and the ways that this relation left me really fucked up and this time period is probably the one that is the most traumatic and what which caused a lot of my PTSD but I do have a few notes so let's get into it uh that whole baby passage of of me wanting to be pregnant of him wanting me to be pregnant couldn't be more toxic like, imagine having a child within that relationship. Holy shit, am I happy that I never gotten even close to getting pregnant with this person. Also, the amount of anxiety I had during those times were, like, astronomical. Like, I can't believe it took me until I was, like, 26 to understand what anxiety was. I don't, I don't know what the fuck I was doing in my 20s, like just like just floating around not even understanding simple concepts like anxiety no one told me that was probably what I had uh but like I didn't even know it's like I couldn't I was so gaslit especially within my family to just like think that I'm okay and I was like I had a great childhood or whatever I didn't really have major mental health issues but which was a lie anyway that like I didn't even know I was allowed to consider that maybe just maybe I suffered from anxiety and like I remember sometimes like um during that period of time like finishing work and getting so anxious about 
going home alone and just being home alone that I I would get I I would just get irrationally overwhelmed and my sister would just like had given me her keys to her house which at this point she was like married with like a few kids and she would just be like come home whenever and I would just like go to her place and just sleep like I was definitely her teenager and uh the mentioning the mention of my sister actually I thought about this while I was narrating it because the lack of me mentioning my sister at the end of the book is in a way intentional um because what happens here okay when you're in an abusive relationship one way or another you get pushed out of people's lives you get um I'm you like get oddly estranged from people and uh a lot of people just give up and honestly I've never ever felt any resentment towards my friends and my sister for in a way giving up a little because it was four years of constantly repeating the same behavior over and over and over again and people just (laughs) lack the patience at the end you know what I mean so I think that's also why the end was really hard even harder because it I was very much alone I had some people I had my friends but they weren't as supportive as let's say the beginning because at one point they just give you space and then you take the space because then you feel embarrassed that you're constantly within this loop of of knowing he's a horrible person but not leaving and then breaking up and then coming back together and and my sister and I would always have these conversations of her being like I know that you're aware and maybe I was too aware for my own good because she was like you're so aware of what's going on that like I know you'll leave eventually but it took too long like I should have left years before you know but we both didn't realize how traumatized I was from the get-go like like you know uh ooh, I almost said his name there um Sawyer Sawyer's trauma it was compound trauma you know what I mean like it was tra- trauma on top of trauma so he wasn't the beginning he was the end really you know so yeah that the it, it, it got really lonely at the end uh definitely I was I felt very removed from everyone and uh that's what happens in abusive relationships you know you feel like there's no one else but this person something funny-ish uh very cancer I think in my opinion is um I used to have this thing and that reminded me because I used to do it I did it with Owen but I used to do it in college too uh back when MySpace was a thing but Facebook you could do the same where I would like literally unfriend and then friend the person I was into over and over again but they were all assholes that would used to like be dicks anyways so they would do something and then I would delete them and then eventually I would re-add them but it was also a way for me to get their attention like I can't believe I used to do that and I can't believe guys would just like (laughs) I would just like go around being so desperate and then I would I I wouldn't understand why guys didn't want to date me because I would like be like weirdly I would just I was low-key kind of a stalker to be honest in my humble opinion (laughs) anyway uh not that cancers are stalkers why i say that it's a (laughs) total cancer move is um that like sort of like 
reflex of like hiding in in your little like armor and your little uh you know shell and hoping that people come to you to see if you're okay you know like that was like my my way to get their attention but not actually telling them that they were like fucking me over and i was like you know i didn't like them or they were doing something shitty to me or something so the last subject i want to talk about i want to be really very careful how I discuss this because I don't want to put the blame on Sawyer when I've already put enough and I don't necessarily know how to discuss this without him looking a little bit (laughs) shady but Maybe it's just me not knowing how to navigate these feelings still, but I do still want to talk about the subject, which is uh, coercion, sexual coercion, because that's a form of sexual assault, but it's a form that's very, very invisible, and um, it really has to do with consent, obviously, but the reason why I, I'm saying I want to be very clear on shift maybe shifting the blame away from him is that I didn't know what consent was and also I didn't understand the 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 agency I had over my own body so in a way it's not that I'm blaming myself but I'm sort of just blaming the situation maybe more than anything um, it's just uncomfortable thing to talk about, but I do want to talk about it, uh, because he used to, there was some, some manipulating tendencies when it come, it came to our sex life. But once again, I just don't know if he was doing it consciously. You know, and I, I don't know if it was like him being like, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know. Sorry if this is so vague, but like he used to, like if we didn't have sex every day, and we would like skip a day or something, I would immediately know something was wrong. Because like for him, like withholding sex was like a, a tell that something was wrong. And that ultimately I probably had done something wrong. But I also noticed, uh, I, I also remember like, uh, like often where I couldn't quite say no, to be honest. Like when I look back now, like I remember one time we went out for drinks and we had a great time. Like, I remember, like, walking back to his place. The full moon was out or something close to the full moon. And it was just really nice. And I remember just having a nice moment, having a smoke. And then waking up the next morning and he was, like, pissed. And, like, in, like, like, in the way that he, like, ignores me pissed, you know, like that, that vibe. And, uh, and then eventually he was like, we didn't have sex last night. And I was like, okay. And I think I remember like the, like the cigarette had made me nauseous or something. So I just like wanted to go to bed. And for him, that was like an insult. Like something was wrong. I was hiding something or I I had fucked up in some way because we hadn't had sex. And now I think back and I'm like, that was coercion. Like that was manipulating my emotions a hundred percent because that's just not right and yeah so so that 
that passage of me inviting soy over we go to honey's and then that same night i want to have sex and then i wake up the next morning and i can't remember but he's like yeah we had sex okay shady i have to admit um and he even voiced it later on that week where he felt uh, he felt weird about it uh knowing that i didn't remember um and i like remember waving him off being like whatever who fucking cares like I don't care I don't give a fuck you know because of how little agency I had over my body is that when I was in in this relationship because then with Aldo and with my whole you know healing thing then I learned quite differently behaviors quite differently than that but um I feel like I'm rambling uh I I remember just being like, in my brain, when you're in a relationship, it equals them having access to your body all of the time. It doesn't matter if you're in the mood or not. You're in a relationship, therefore they have access to your body. That's how I saw it, which is fucked up. Um, So that's why I have a hard time saying like, oh yeah, it was all his fault. Because I feel like I had a, a, I, in a way, because of, of my own lack of understanding consent, I didn't understand how to put boundaries and healthy boundaries. But yeah, a lot of it is very gray area and I'll just leave it at that because I don't need to like say anything more or get into it as much or anything. But so yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah, uh, episode nine was rough, aka that whole time period was really rough. So let's move on to final episode, episode 10, uh, the final countdown to this beautiful, beautiful love story. Am I right? I'll see you on the flip side. Bye. One, two, three. Thank mm-hmm. you.